Hi, this is Mike Spivey of the Spivey Consulting Group. It is Monday, March 15th, and I'm excited to have a friend and mentor with me, Jeff Chapman. Jeff and I have known each other for, I think, going on over 15 years, and despite his incredibly busy schedule, he's one of two people on the planet who I will turn to if I have a profound business issue, legal issue, life issue. You know, I will text Jeff, and Jeff will always call me that day. When my father passed away, I, I was with someone, but Jeff was actually the first person. He somehow knew when he was the first person, I can remember this, that called me. So Jeff and I are really close. We have vacation together, spent a lot of time together. I've learned so much from him, and I'm so thrilled to be able to share his experience, which is so broad and vast, with you all. Uh, Jeff graduated from Harvard Law School, cum laude. He's an Iowa undergrad. From Harvard, he went to Vincent and Elkins, where I think in his 30s, he was the managing partner. Just been for many years now with Gibson Dunn. At Gibson, he's the co-chair of their global mergers and acquisition practice group. Jeff has been on the president's advisory board of UT Southwestern Medical Center. He has been a distinguished speaker at his alma mater, Harvard Law. It was Dean Martha Minow who brought Jeff back to Harvard to speak. And I bring that up because we're trying to get Martha on our podcast, so maybe Jeff can help there. But speaking of help, I can't think of maybe one or two other people who have helped my career as much as Jeff has, who have such incredible career advice as much as Jeff is going to give us. And without further delay, let me hand it over to Jeff. Hey, Jeff, happy birthday, a day late. What are you, 50 now? Is that right? From your mouth to God's ear, I'm 63, Mike. 63. Yesterday was a Sunday and your birthday. How many work calls and emails did you do yesterday? did four work calls, four or five, and I don't know, maybe a hundred emails. I always want to give people a sense of how busy someone at Big Law, someone who's a partner, M&A, and I'm guessing four calls is incredibly light for you. What would a typical day be like for you as far as meetings, phone calls, emails? Well, it depends on how busy the market is. When the market is really busy, then I could do you know, a dozen to 18 calls a day, several hundred emails. It's pretty frenetic. When the market's slow, the number of calls and emails goes down proportionally, although I'm typically spending a lot of time then trying to drum up business. But it can be very, very busy. And I'm busy right now. So seven days a week, I'm working. How many of those texts and phone calls are panic calls from me saying U.S. News and World Report just sent me a cease and desist letter? What do I do? Well, not very many. And when you call an email, it's always a pleasure. I'd love to send you a bill for the work I provide to you, but your friendship suffices, Mike. If you can be on my next phone call with LSAC, I'd appreciate it. Please don't bill me. I don't want to see how astronomical that is. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Let's go back in time. You're an undergraduate at Iowa probably going to football games, maybe having a beer or two from time to time. Every now your, and then. Your dad wants you to be a college president, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, he did, actually. When I was a boy, seven, eight, nine years old, and my parents would take me to Iowa City for football games, we'd always go by the president's house. My dad would turn to me in the backseat and say, Jeffrey, someday you'll live in that house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that didn't happen. My parents never said that to me, and I did want to be a college president. Yeah. What made you, why law school? And as an interesting caveat side note for our listeners, they actually have to answer this question in the interviews all the time now. I'm curious what made you interested in law? 
the truth is that one of my heroes growing up was a lawyer. He was a gentleman named David Bellin. He was a corporate lawyer in Des Moines, probably almost certainly the most prominent transactional lawyer in the state of Iowa. And he served on the Warren Commission and wrote a number of books about the Kennedy assassination. His sons were very good friends of mine, wonderful friends of mine. And I really grew to admire Mr. Bellin and that triggered my interest in the law. Yeah, that's interesting. So I've been with you in Dallas, obviously, many, many times. And we've driven around that area where Kennedy was assassinated. And you pointed out a lot of historical landmarks. Does that come from your relationship dating all the way back to that mentor of yours? In some respects. But the truth is, Mike, my first memory as a child when I was five years old was my mother crying when President Kennedy was shot and then killed. I I remember the TV coverage of the shooting and then 30 minutes later, the announcement that he passed away. And that's my earliest memory. So it's always something that's touched my heart and given me pain. Mr. Bellin's interest certainly was you know, relevant to all that. He wrote a number of books about the Kennedy assassination, always defending the Warren Commission. And the, the books are beautifully written. And he was a great man, a real inspiration. Do you remember how many schools you applied to and what sort of drew you to Harvard? Had you ever been to Boston before? Mike, I remember everything like yesterday. When I was in high school, I was a very good student. And I, I hung out with a number of very good students. And almost every one of them ended up going to the Ivy League. My parents told me that I could go to the University of Iowa, and that was my only option. And I was delighted to go there. It turned out to be great. I met my late wife, Sheila, there. It was all good. But I kind of burned to go to the Ivy League after I went to Iowa because I didn't have the choice coming out of high school. So I was very, very serious about my college studies, and I was a very good student at Iowa, and then was scared to death when I took the LSAT because I thought that I could blow that wonderful grade point that I'd built by tanking the LSAT. So it was always on my mind from day one as a college student. I think our audience can relate. Did you only take the LSAT once? I just took it once. I didn't have the ability to take a Stanley Kaplan course. They were teaching them back then, but certainly not in the state of Iowa. There was no Kaplan office in Iowa City or Des Moines. So I, I bought a couple of books on how to prepare for the LSAT. And I remember keeping track of how many hours I spent taking sample tests and studying 30 hours. And then I went in and took it. I was nervous as could be, but it ended up I did fine and was admitted to a number of wonderful law schools. And so what made you choose Harvard? Really, the truth is the brand. As a kid from Iowa, Harvard seemed to be the very best. Wanted to go there as an undergraduate, didn't have that opportunity. And interestingly, Mike, Harvard was the first school to notify me of an acceptance or rejection. I remember going home. I was living at home at the time, going out to the mailbox on a cold winter night, walking in. And I noticed a letter from Harvard Law School and it was thick. You know, I'd never applied to colleges before. I only applied to Iowa and I knew I was going to get in. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder why it's thick. And it didn't take me very long instinctively to understand it was good news. It was a beautiful night. I remember it very well. Yeah, I have a similar memory. So all my life, I wanted to go to Vanderbilt because my grandparents lived in Nashville and we would walk around Vanderbilt's campus. So when I got the letter, this is so weird, Jeff, but there's this boulder in the backyard of my family's house. The boulder was higher than our house. And I was so nervous to open the letter, I climbed the boulder, which is like my childhood safe spot. And I opened the Vanderbilt letter on top of the boulder to find out I had been admitted. Just like you said, that memory is just like yesterday. I can picture myself being up there. That's a great memory, Mike. I'm glad you shared it with me. Yeah. So you, I'm assuming you drive to Harvard from Iowa. Is that right? Sheila and I were married on August 3rd. We loaded up a rider truck, scared to death, and took off on Interstate 80 out to Harvard. And so Sheila moved with you. You move into an apartment. We did, and, and not a very nice one. 
Right. What was it like? So my experience from the decanal side of things is in week one, every student, no matter what school I've been at, Vanderbilt, WashU, or University of Colorado, every student thinks the student to their left or right is smarter than they are. It takes a few weeks to sort of realize you belong to imposter syndrome. Was it like that for you? Very much so. I was convinced that my admission was a mistake, even though my grades in LSAT justified the admission. Uh, I was scared to death. Interestingly, I expected that a lot of my classmates were going to be jerks. And it almost was instantly apparent that the opposite was true. I fell in love with my classmates during that first week. They were the most engaging, intelligent, thoughtful people I'd ever met. And uh, my three years there were really wondrous years. Harvard Law School is a great place to be. And I'll never forget my experience there and will always treasure my friendships from those three years. I'm guessing you stay in touch with a lot of those people today. I do. Some of my very closest friends in the world are from Harvard Law School. Have you closed deals, made deals, made business connections through them? Yes, I have. I think that's an important thing to double click on for our listeners I mean, don't go around befriending everyone just for business contacts, but they often help you throughout your legal career, I would think. They do. I don't think that my attendance at Harvard had an outsized role in the referrals that I've received through the course of my career, but my Harvard network has helped. And recently, in fact, I'm working on an IPO and I only had that deal because of a friendship from Harvard Law School as candidly, as sincerely as you can, if you had gone to a top 10 school, but not a top three school, or if you had gone to a top 20 school, do you think you would be sitting in a different place right now versus a corner office at Gibson Dunn? No, I think I'd still be in the corner office at Gibson Dunn. I treasure my Harvard Law School diploma and my experience there. I'm very proud to have gone there and believe it's the best law school in the world but I still think I would be here. I think people overemphasize the importance of rankings in law schools. You can become a great lawyer regardless of the law school you go to within reason. I suspected you were going to say that. I think you listened to our interview with Dr. Winch. He said something very similar. You know, after your first job, people are interested in how you did in your first job. The way I think of rankings is if you go to a higher ranked school, maybe the starting gun for the marathon goes off 15 seconds quicker, but you're running a marathon and the rest of the race is how you run it, not when the gun goes off. Is that a good analogy? It's a perfect analogy. I agree. Someone posted on Reddit the other day that prestige matters and they posted it as if they had invented cold fusion. Well, of course, prestige matters, but I would agree with you. I think people fine point it too much. In your career matters, what you do matters a lot more than prestige. I mean, for example, Mike, I would never mention Harvard Law School status in a client pitch. And I don't even think about it. I don't think of myself as a Harvard Law School graduate when I'm talking to a prospective client. It's just not relevant in my mind. It may be in theirs, but it's just not something I think about at all. Yeah, I find that the people who tell me within a minute of meeting them what Ivy League school they went to are also the people that tell me how great of a lawyer they are. And none of the great lawyers I know have ever told me that they're a great lawyer. You've never once sent me an email and said, hey, Spivey, I'm a great lawyer. Right. I've never said it to you. I've never said it to anyone. including Right. My well, you are. You are. And you recognize as one world over. We met during the Great Recession. I think we met at breakfast at a Ritz. That's such a lawyerly thing to do, by the way. I don't, no one wants to take me to breakfast at the Ritz anymore. And you hired a bunch of my students. Thank you. That was very helpful for my career. You were tough. You were tough during the interviews and some of them were scared. 
some of them were traumatized a little bit after you interviewed them. What were you looking for? And I guess let me approach it from two angles. What would excite you? What were the things that made you interested in a candidate? And then conversely, what were the things that were hard stop? No, I do not want to hire this person. I'm going to assume for purposes of answering the question that all the candidates we're talking about have great grades and are excellent students, strong intellect. The thing that often excites me the most, I like rags to riches stories. So I like people who have come from very little and have figured out a way to succeed despite having headwinds. So that's something that I'm always looking for. And that doesn't mean that I haven't hired kids from wealthy families before. I do that all the time. But I like my candidates to burn with ambition a bit. I want to feel that fire because what we do is really difficult. It is impossible to do well in big law without really working hard. I don't care how talented, how brilliant you are. You've got to have the willingness to kill yourself at times to succeed. So I really like that. The thing that turns me off the most is arrogance. In my own life, anytime I've been arrogant, I paid a price. It never pays to be arrogant. And when I see it in a law student, it's an immediate turnoff and typically a reason that I would say no. Yeah, there's a psychologist named Terry Real who I listened to a podcast of his and the word he used was grandiosity because of things that happened to him as a child with an abusive father. He built this wall of grandiosity around him and he made it his life goal to beat that down. And it's one of two podcasts I've heard in the last year where his words were so sincere. There was zero grandiosity in him, no arrogance, zero arrogance. And because of that, it made me want to listen to the entire two-hour podcast. So that's relatable. I think you might not realize how scrutinizing you were, my students. I got a phone call from you once. You're not going to remember this. And there was a student I really liked, and I was really hopeful that you would hire him. And you called me, you know, it was like 10 p.m. I mean, you said, Mike, I I liked him. I want to hire him, but he wasn't wearing collar stays. And I'm on the phone with you, and I'm Googling. Literally, I'm typing in, what is a collar stay? Do you remember that? I don't remember it, but I know myself well enough to know that I said it. Right. (laughs) That sounds like half my memories these days. So I don't think people realize it, but you are getting thousands of emails from anxious law students. It's a lot easier to say no to someone than to take the time to invest in someone. So every I has to be dotted, every T has to be crossed, correct? Yeah. On the other hand, no one is perfect and no interview is perfect. So I'm certainly forgiving at some level. Not, would, the, not the collar state level. That's where I'll tell you, I, I had a summer associate a couple summers ago, and he's now one of my associates. And if he listens to this, he'll be smiling as he listens. And I went in a couple of weeks after he started, I said, I know this is offensive, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here are a couple of collar stays. I want to show you how to use them. And he's worn them ever since. <laughs> Okay, I'm not right now, but I still wear these. No one ever wears these buttons anymore, and I do wear the button shirt. You look um, just fine, Mike. Thank, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> okay, so we, we turned to Reddit and we said, you know, what are some questions to ask this person who's a world famous, prominent MA lawyer, but also has done a lot of hiring in his career? And a lot of the questions seem to be centered on would you be interested in someone from Harvard versus someone from a full scholarship called the Rubenstein from Chicago? And I'm guessing that doesn't even show up on your radar. Like I'm guessing you don't get that parsed and nuanced. Or are you aware of scholarship names? Like Anna, our COO, who you know, who you've had dinner with, she received a Dillard at UVA. So she had a full scholarship. Does that kind of stuff pop to you or is that off your radar? 
unless getting a scholarship somehow suggests that that person is more qualified than another candidate, I could care less about scholarships, how you pay for law school. So you've been successful in your career, obviously. What did Harvard miss? Or not Harvard, but law schools in general. What do you think they miss as far as preparing for someone that you had to learn on your own? And what are they still missing today when you hire new associates? So I spent three years in Cambridge, and I think the thing that I took away more than anything was a set of intellectual skills, how to look at a fact pattern, analyze it, figure out issues and solutions. The substantive information that I learned during those three years faded quickly. That's true for most education. I would venture to say very few of my classmates remember much of the substantive information that they were taught at Harvard Law School. So for three years, it's a very rigorous intellectual exercise. I've often wondered whether it takes three years to learn to think like a lawyer. The truth is it doesn't. Most of those intellectual skills are taught and learned during the first year, and then the next two years are more about substance. I've wondered if perhaps there ought to be a more clinical approach to legal education those back two years than there is now. Now, I understand there's more clinical education now than there was 35, 40 years ago when I was at law school, but I still wonder if three years is too long unless you're focusing more on clinical aspects of education. Is there anything else you would change if you were to just be placed as a dean of a law school? If I were to, and I think I actually have done this, I think a school is looking for a dean and they called me and I nominated you. Do you remember that? It was when I was at Wash U. Well, I, d- deep down, I'm interested, Mike. I've always wanted to go into education. I, at the age of 63, I, it's too late for me, but I, I should have listened to you. I'm not close enough to the specifics of legal education. No, I will say this. I follow what's happened at Harvard Law since I've left and everything I see and hear indicates it has a better approach to education now than it did when I was there. Classes are smaller. The professors are more accessible. There's less of an adversarial tone in the class. And there's a greater focus on community service and service to underprivileged members of the population there used to be. So it's a better legal education than it used to be that I'm comfortable with. It makes sense. It makes sense that entities improve over time. Have law firms improved over time since you started? They've improved a lot. Law firms are run much better than they ever were before. I think they promote meritocracy and excellence more than they used to. They're better at client service than they used to be, and they're just overall much more effective than they used to be. I mean, a lot of law firms used to be gentlemen's clubs 50, 60 years ago, and no law firm can afford to be that way anymore. And by that, you mean it was like meeting for cigars and a drink and you would employ the person you liked the most or your book of clients would be built over people who looked like you and who acted like you? Is that sort of what you mean? Very much so. 60, 70 years ago, many law firms excluded women, any kind of minority. Uh, They were white gentlemen's clubs and that's simply not the case anymore. Yeah. I have some questions from Reddit But any final piece of advice about what it takes to be a good lawyer at a firm like you're at? Well, let me give you an example. I always tell our audience, if they're going to read two books, one of them should be Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People. I've got it on my bookshelf. Exactly. Like having a conversation with you is like talking to the book. You don't know this, but when Anna and I were going to have dinner with you, I said, Anna, let's see how long it takes before Jeff talks about himself, because he's going to be asking us about ourselves And I think it was like an hour and a half before I was able to ask about your children, which is really your innate personality. That's also Dale Carnegie 101, take interest in others. 
Is there anything like that that you would recommend? Because law schools don't teach that. And law schools don't tell you, you know, you're in sales. You're building a book of business. You and I went out for yogurt once with your daughter when she was young. She was like 12 or 13. And you were hitting up the poor 16-year-old after you bought the yogurt for us all. You know, where's your corporate headquarters? Who's your CEO? And, you know, that poor kid had no idea. There's certainly an awful lot of rules of the road in your professional life, things to do and not to. And you're right. One of the things I do, I think naturally, but I think it works professionally is I'm a lot more interested in the other guy than I am myself. The truth is that everyone's favorite subject is him or herself. I mean, my wife and I will go to dinner with people and I'll ask many, many questions and they'll seem to have a wonderful time and we'll get in the car and Kim will say, well, you know, they, they didn't really ask about us. And I'll say, yeah, wasn't it wonderful? We know that the other couple had a great time. The client perhaps had a great time and felt really important. And that I think is important in generating client relationships and generating trust in a lawyer, knowing that the lawyer cares more about the other guy than himself. Yeah. So I always think of that as EQ probably matters a little bit more even than IQ, even at the nuanced levels of big law. Obviously, you have to have both. And you touched upon another thing that I've heard many lawyers say. There are days you have to sit down and grind all day long. Yeah. Today's okay. one of them, Mike. I'm okay. <laughs> starting early and I'm an ad late. Yeah. Well, I know how early you start. I think some of the times I've been at your house, I've seen you out the door at 4 a.m. with two big suitcases. What are those called? Are, are there a name for those things? Those big black boxes you put files in? Well, I don't use those anymore because I use the internet more and just, but right. I, I think they're called case bags. And I remember okay. those. Yeah. yeah. I remember waking up and the sun's not out and you're in a suit walking out the door with case bags. Yeah. I know you're busy and you're going to have an ugly day. I have time, Mike, whatever time you need. I've got. Okay. Someone on Reddit asked what qualities make for good, bad, for big law culture and lifestyle? Well, let's start with culture. To me, the two most important things about a strong culture in a law firm is first, the most senior partners in the firm don't view the firm as a piggy bank and take less than they could in the open market. I've felt that way since I was a young partner in my first firm. It's very, very important to have a comp system where the most successful lawyers leave money on the table. And the other aspect that I think is important for a culture is that the partners and colleagues in the firm, associates in the firm, treat each other as well as they treat their clients. For example, when I have a message from one of my partners and a message from one of my clients, I know that there's a client behind the message from the partner. And I'm as inclined to call the partner back as a client back. That's, I think, part of the culture of my firm and a part of the culture of most successful firms. So you treat each other with a great deal of respect. You view your partners as your clients and things seem to go well. And I've rarely had a client say, gee, you were too late in getting back to me. So there's always time to treat people fairly, including your partners. And I try to do that as well as I can. I know you're familiar with Southwest Airlines. When I was in business school, we studied them. They were sort of the darling to study. Herb Kelleher, how do you pronounce his last name? Herb Kelleher. He was a great lawyer, a great business leader, and a great man. I knew Herb. He was a fantastic human being. And a good arm wrestler, right? He won a couple uh, lawsuits through arm wrestling. So his, I think one of his foundational mandates was put each other first, not the client first, which was sort of groundbreaking at the time, but put the people at Southwest ahead of everyone, because if you're getting along, you're going to get along with the people on the flight too. I think that's a great philosophy and I believe in it. Someone asked about opinions on having both an MBA and JD. Do those stand out to you? 
I, I had two very close friends in law school who pursued both. And let me just assure you that they're a lot wealthier than I am. Okay, okay. interesting. <laughs> both went into private equity. Neither ever practiced uh, law. Oh, they, I think I know one of the two people you're talking yeah, about. They both are nationally known and fantastic people, but they never practiced law. No, I think a JD MBA is a great thing to pursue. And I'll tell you, a number of individuals who pursue that joint degree end up practicing law and not going to business. And it's a fantastic approach to uh, legal education if you know you want to practice in the business law area. You know, I hadn't thought of this question, but if you, Jeff Chapman, if you were just in it for the money, you would go be a CEO of a company, right? Or being a private equity executive. I mean, there are a lot of ways of making money, but you're right. If you want to be as wealthy as your wealthiest clients, don't practice law. So I'm more interested in the follow-up question because my goal on, on this planet is not to be Jeff Bezos. You still enjoy practicing law. You love practicing law. There's still a passion in it for you. There was a period of time in my career, a long period of time in my career when I wasn't sure I wanted to continue to practice law and I didn't necessarily enjoy it as much as I do now. I can safely say I love practicing law now more than I ever have. I'm having more fun. I feel like I'm making a greater difference for my clients and just achieving more than I ever have. But there was a long period of time when I wasn't sure. When I was 40 years old, I came within a hair's breadth of going to Bear Stearns and becoming an investment banker. The thinking being that I do that for four or five years and then go into private equity. I didn't. I'm glad I didn't, but it was a very close call at the time. I didn't know that. We wouldn't have met. So thank you for staying in law. Someone wanted to know realistically if a big law associate could expect to take a two-week international trip for vacation annually without major issues. Yeah, I think that's possible. I do. I mean, there may be points in time, even though you're traveling internationally, that you're going to have to hop on a phone or answer a question or check an email. But sure, that happens all the time. I've seen it happen. My associates have done that. Someone asked, how do firms view the T6? You might not even know this vernacular, which is amusing to me. The top six law schools versus the top 14. Does the difference between the two vanish after the first few years? We kind of touched on this. Would it matter to you in hiring of someone from a top six school, which I'm going to guess you couldn't even name the top six schools. Could you? I mean, I, I would be guessing now. I mean, I assume it's Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago, uh, Columbia, Michigan. That's my guess. NYU, not Michigan, but Michigan's right outside, Penn's right outside, Duke's right outside, et cetera. Are you going to give someone an edge if they're at the, one of the top six versus outside the top six, but in the top 14? No, I'm not. You talked to a client of mine once and she had a scholarship at Columbia and no money at Harvard, your alma mater, and you recommended that she go to Columbia. Yeah, Columbia is a fabulous law school. If she does really well and works very, very hard, she's going to be as successful in going to Columbia as having gone to Harvard. Plus, you know, there, there are advantages to going to Columbia. I mean, you're in New York City. It's just an incredible place to go to law school. So I felt she should take the money and run. I would suspect at the very top law schools, I'm not going to have an arbitrary cutoff point. I don't know where it is. There's advantages to all of the top whatever law schools, and there's disadvantages to all of the top whatever law schools, and people need to try to find the best fit for them. Agreed. I just have to say that when I hear people struggling mightily to figure out where to go to law school, and they've got a choice among the top 10, I just got to smile because they're so lucky and they cannot go wrong. And I see that in, in kids deciding where to go to college too. It's like, You are so lucky. Just flip a coin. It's going to be fine. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. And we like to think of our firm as trying to give people as many of these difficult decisions to make as possible. Right. And it's not just at the top 14 level. It's still an awesome, difficult decision if you're going to go to a school number 25 through 30. Wonderful problem to have. 
There it is. And by, and by the way, Mike, you haven't asked a question, but going to 25 or 30 can lead to an incredible legal career. I mean, one of the, maybe the finest m lawyer I've ever known went to Southern Methodist University, was and is a fabulous lawyer. And I have other colleagues who've gone to SMU and other schools who are not necessarily in the top 20 who are incredible lawyers and doing amazing things. So your clients shouldn't lose much sleep if they're not going to a top 10 law school. They can do quite well and likely will do quite well regardless. If I became the dean of a law school ranked 100, and I were to say, Jeff, I have two students in the top 5%, could you interview them for Gibson Dunn? Would Gibson Dunn be interested in interviewing them? I think top 5% may not cut it. Top two or three individuals probably would. I think we talked to 25 or 30 schools at most, and they're almost all in the top 25 or 30 in the rankings. When I was the dean of career services at WashU, when we met, I reached out to the Central Intelligence Agency. I don't think people realize this, but they're at the cutting edge of intellectual property law. Yeah. So they agreed to meet with me. They had only hired historically in the top 10 law schools and we were ranked number 17 or 18. So they agreed to meet with me, but I couldn't go to Langley. So we had to meet at a bar in DC. And the woman said her name was, I remember the first name, I'm not going to say it, something Lionheart. And I, I wasn't buying it. I'm like, there's no way this person. Seriously? Yeah, it was. Yeah, she said her name was, you know, X Lionheart. I'm like, that's not your name. I didn't. Sounds I didn't like it's right it. out of a James Bond. I didn't express my disbelief, but I thought she was lying about her name. And then the CIA sent a lawyer to speak to our students at WashU, and her name was the initial J. Period. <laughs> and you, you know, Ken Siverud, who was the dean at WashU at the time. He was just like, this is ridiculous. He's like, they're lawyers. Why can't they tell us their names? Yeah, that surprises me. I can see Ken's face when he said that. I'm yeah, sure Ken, like, his eyes. Yeah. You're right, right. One more question. And I actually do not, I can't interpret this question because I've never heard this term before. Ask Jeff if he feels like the M&A jock stereotype holds true. And if so, does he feel at least the exclusion in the workplace in any way? I'm not entirely certain what the questioner is asking. If he or she is asking whether there is a stereotypical M&A lawyer, an aging white male who kind of takes over the board meetings, I think there is some residual or legacy truth to that, that there are fewer women in M&A than in some other areas. There are fewer lawyers of color, perhaps, than there are in other areas, but that's changing rapidly. At your firm, right? Your new managing partner. Yeah. The co-head of our M&A practice group, Barbara Becker, has just been named managing partner of the firm. And let me assure you, she's central casting for a boardroom lawyer and for managing partner. She's going to do a great job. But there are not that many Barbara Beckers, for example, in New York M&A bar. It's an area where more diversity is needed. And I think you're going to see more diversity over time. And hopefully more diversity in law schools. You know, there's a lot of pushes on that front. So I think over time, that's right. Any final advice? Well, my advice for your law school applicants, your clients, and those who listen to your talks is to relax, to do the very best you can, to accept that you may not get into your dream school, but do expect that you're going to have a dream career. You do not have to go to your number one law school to achieve all your goals. I believe that to my core. And once they get into a law school, they'll get an excellent education, do your very best, network like crazy, and plan and expect to have a wonderful career. Thanks, Jeff. I'm very thankful for your time. Happy birthday a day late. Thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And uh, my best to Anna. And let's talk soon, okay? Okay. 